This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Whether you're busting out a big session in the gym, learning some new moves in dance class, or doing some gardening at the weekend, moving our muscles is a source of much joy for many of us. Use it or lose it is the mantra. Today, two stories on that theme. Now my haramai kitiau hurahanga. Welcome to our changing world, Kōklak and Kanantene. Later, we speak to someone interested in what happens to our muscles as we age. But first, we meet a researcher investigating muscle development in children. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Hansfield. I'm a senior research fellow in the musculoskeletal modeling group at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. And musculoskeletal modeling, can you get into that a little bit for me? What does that mean? Yeah, so the institute where I work in general um, has kind of a theme of using computational modeling, computational bioengineering approaches, and it's basically uh, developing complex computer models to study physiology. The group that I work in is really interested in the musculoskeletal system, um, or musculoskeletal if I have my Kiwi accent on. So the musculoskeletal system comprises skeletal muscles. So those are the muscles that most people think about, your biceps, the ones that you can flex and help you move. Um, Tendons, which link your muscles to your bones, the bones themselves, uh, ligaments and cartilage. And that's uh, basically the musculoskeletal system. Um, So in our group, we're interested in using imaging methods to capture those tissues in really high detail, in some cases subject specifically. So we'll develop models of a specific person or a specific patient. And we take those images and we use them in different ways to develop uh, often mechanical models or uh, mechanobiological models that we can then use to explore the physiology of the uh, musculoskeletal system. One of the projects Jeffrey is working on is using MRI to investigate muscle development in children with cerebral palsy. We like MRI because it gives us a very comprehensive snapshot of the 3D anatomy of muscles and uh, ligaments and tendons. In the case of one of my projects, the fascia, uh, which is this tissue that sort of surrounds the, the muscles and interdigitates uh, with other tissues throughout the body. So we like MRI for that reason. It has really high contrast for soft tissues. He's doing this in collaboration with Matai Medical Research Institute, a not-for-profit charitable trust and independent research institute based in Tairafati. Basically, we are recruiting kids with cerebral palsy, um, so um, late pediatric and adolescent kids with cerebral palsy, and we're conducting longitudinal imaging, which means taking them to the scanner at multiple time points um, over the course of a couple of years 
And the reason that we're doing that is because we want to understand how muscle size is progressing, muscle size and, and muscle, we call it muscle architecture. We want to understand, understand how that's progressing over time. And so we do the imaging in groups of kids with cerebral palsy, as well as uh, groups of kids who are typically developing, which basically means that they do not have cerebral palsy. And so we're doing that imaging, and we're also pioneering a, a modeling technique called statistical shape modeling. And that allows us to quantitatively uh, determine the shape of any structure, but in our case, muscles. And so by quantitatively determining the shape, we can have these very, very rigorous comparisons of the shape of muscles uh, between cerebral palsy and typical. So that was kind of our first study, and we've, we've published some of those results already. And now that we're collecting the longitudinal data, we're going to be able to look at how the shape and size changes over time in cerebral palsy versus those typical participants. Can you explain to me what cerebral palsy is? Yeah, cerebral palsy is a neuromuscular skeletal disorder. So it starts with a, a neural, um, called a neural insult. So it's uh, basically in the, the brain, in the central nervous system, there will be um, some traumatic damage of the brain. The damage happens in utero or at or near birth. So it happens very young. And the downstream effects of that insult that occurs in the central nervous system is it manifests as, uh, as neural issues, um, things like spasticity. So there's um, kind of a, an inability to fully neurally control the muscles. And it also, over time, leads to impaired development of the muscles, impaired development of bony structures, the skeleton, and movement as well. So it's, it's actually the most common cause of disability among young people. Um, and it has a pretty consistent incidence around the world, country to country. But we're basically trying to understand how this, uh, this neural issue, which is defined as non-progressive, which means that the neural impairment does not get worse, but the musculoskeletal effects do get worse over time. And so we're trying to understand that um, paradox, if you like. According to the Neurological Foundation website, cerebral palsy affects one in every 500 New Zealand children, with an estimated 17 million people affected worldwide. They used to actually think that, that there was a, a sort of a physical trauma aspect. So, you know, uh, an OBGYN delivering a baby that put pressure in the wrong place could, could damage the brain. We've improved a lot of techniques around birth, but we've gotten this sort of plateau of the, the prevalence of cerebral palsy. Um, it does turn out that there are some genetic markers for cerebral palsy. There's a, something like 20 genes that are in some different ways correlated with cerebral palsy occurring. So it does seem to be something that exists in populations worldwide. And untangling the stable brain impairment but worsening muscle symptoms paradox is a key part of the puzzle. So often, you know, very young kids will not be diagnosed with cerebral palsy because, you know, from the outside they appear normal. So they, they're normal infants and they, they move around um, normally. And if, you're, if you catch cerebral palsy really early, it'll be something like three years old when a parent notices maybe some abnormal movements and then um, goes in to see uh, an orthopedic surgeon or a physiotherapist. That would be extremely early. Often it's um, four or five years old before that's noticed and, and caught and, and the diagnosis is made. I, I have some colleagues that are actually working on using artificial intelligence to identify cerebral palsy at an earlier age. 
But with that said, I think it demonstrates that um, that movement impairment, which is not really noticeable at uh, two or three years old, uh, will become noticeable at four or five. It'll become worse by seven or eight. You know, someone who's walking maybe with um, some noticeable impairment as a, as a child um, by adolescents might be using orthotics or a walker, some kind of assistive device or a wheelchair. And as people age, that impairment gets a, a bit worse and worse. But again, this is defined as a, as a neurally non-progressive disorder. And so understanding what is causing that progression of the disease is, is something that we're trying to understand. Do you have an hypothesis about how this might be working, that you kind of leaned into this MRI approach because you feel like it might help you understand something that's important? Yeah, my hypothesis is that um, the fundamental issue with cerebral palsy is around growth. And so basically you have a body which is which is growing, right? As we age, our bodies get a little bigger and a little bigger. And the muscle, as far as my hypothesis is concerned, is, is not growing. And so we think about growth in, in sort of two directions. One is what we call um, cross-sectional growth. So the muscle getting sort of bigger and fatter and, and meatier in the cross-sectional direction. And that cross-sectional direction tells us about the force-generating capabilities of the muscle. Think here about bulging biceps. So if you have a, a muscle that's small in the cross-sectional direction with a person who's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, then for that increasing load, that growing body, you just don't have the amount of strength in the muscle to move that body effectively. The second direction is the longitudinal direction, so the length of the muscle. And so I think that the muscle also is limited in its ability to grow longitudinally. And so that longitudinal growth lengthens the muscle as the bone is growing longer. It allows the muscle to grow and keep pace with that growing bone. And so I think that in both directions, the muscle is not growing appropriately. And so figuring out uh, why that's happening, figuring out how we could potentially uh, stimulate the muscle to, to grow uh, a bit more normally um, in those early years is something that we're working on. For people who have cerebral palsy, does everybody kind of track the same way? Do they follow the same prognosis or is it quite different? It's quite different actually, yeah. We often talk about uh, heterogeneity of the diagnosis or some people call cerebral palsy this umbrella diagnosis where cerebral palsy basically indicates that you have this, this neural insult. It actually looks a lot like stroke, but it occurs, as I mentioned, at or, or near birth or in utero. So um, everyone with cerebral palsy will have that neural insult and it will broadly lead to impairments with muscle size and shape, with potentially bony anatomy, with joints, with movement. Um, but the particular type of, um, say, joint contracture or the particular type of spasticity or, or movement impairment um, will depend on the person. It's very um, call it subject-specific or patient-specific. Um, we've even tried to associate the, the neural impairment with the muscles that are affected or, or the way that it manifests, but um, so far there's, there have not been clear correlations between that. Um, so it is just a patient-specific manifestation of, of the condition. Because it's an umbrella term, this means there's lots of differences between individual people's symptoms and progression. This is why they plan to study the muscle change in each patient across time in this longitudinal type study. And by doing it this way, you know, we're collecting data across time on an individual. So we're, we're able to track each of those individuals and how their progression uh, occurs. And so we don't have to average across people or make any kinds of assumptions that, you know, that people are having the same manifestation of the disease because we're actually looking at individuals' trajectory separately. How many people are you hoping to recruit in the study? 
Well, so we've uh, recruited a whole cohort of people without cerebral palsy. And so we've, we've been doing longitudinal imaging on that group to look at the normal progression. For the participants with cerebral palsy, we've, we've only recruited three. And I think part of it has been um, sort of in the aftermath of COVID. I think it's been, um, it's been difficult as we're sort of trying to ramp up. But the way that we've structured the study with the small number of um, participants with cerebral palsy we can still track their trajectory based on the, um, the the typical numbers that we've gotten from that large cohort. So we're always keen for more participants. If there are families with cerebral palsy who um, are interested in, in getting involved, we have an imaging site uh, in Auckland as well at Camry, which is at the University of Auckland. And as I mentioned, Matai, which is in Gisborne. The study will take place over a year and three months. They'll take the MRI images at the start for baseline, and then six months after, another six months after that, and then the final one three months after. It's early days in this research, but hopefully it will glean some insight into how to prevent the muscle symptoms from worsening over time. In the meantime, Dr. Jeffrey Hansfield says it does seem to be evidence that exercise can help. There was a time in the last century where doctors and researchers were saying avoid physical activity because it could be painful and um, and it was difficult for, for young people with cerebral palsy. But starting in the 90s, a lot of new research kind of flipped that and suggested that, you know, you can't cure cerebral palsy with physical activity, but the more you can get a young person to be active, to potentially do sports if, they're, if they have a, a mild case of cerebral palsy, or just to be as physically active as, as they possibly can be, considering their condition and how it manifests, um, that promotes the health of the muscles. Um, in some cases, it can strengthen muscles surrounding an affected muscle. So there are a lot of benefits to be had by just being as, as physically active as possible. Definitely a challenge because you know there can be some discomfort. So the Tadeo mana-enhancing term for cerebral palsy, which was coined last year, is Hokai Nukurangi, which basically means, um, you know, traversing the earth in body, traversing the sky in spirit. And the, the idea behind that is that everyone is different and they're going to navigate the world in their own different way. And so at this point in time, it's important to, to recognize that. But promoting physical activity, promoting getting out and, and just being as active as possible um, has really great benefits o- over the long term. Thanks to Dr. Jeffrey Hansfield of the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. Now, from muscle development in young children to the other end of the spectrum, what happens as we get older? Some new research is showing that we actually don't lose that much muscle mass itself, but we lose a lot of muscle, what we call muscle quality. Um, So we lose a lot of power, we lose a lot of strength. This is Dr. Lara Vlistra of the School of Physical Education, Sports and Exercise Science, at the University of Otago. And apologies, Lara, if I've butchered your name. Should I say it in Dutch? Um, because I always struggle, especially my last name is difficult to pronounce in English. So I'm Lara Vlietstra. I'm originally from the Netherlands. Um, I'm a trained physiotherapist. And my clinical work, as well as my research, focuses on older adults and how we can use physical activity to reduce age-related decline and age-related diseases. Initially, Lara thought that she wanted to be a paediatric physiotherapist, but for her second internship, her clinical supervisor suggested she try working with older patients. I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to give that a try. And I did a couple of days with a geriatric physiotherapist and I absolutely loved it. And I just never looked back. 
did my last internship in a geriatric rehabilitation setting and it's like yep this is it they're so knowledgeable and kind and and grateful as a patient population. She worked as a clinical physiotherapist for seven years before moving into research. In that time, Lara helped people rehabilitate from stroke or from lower leg amputations as a result of long-term diabetes complication. But also, more generally, she helped people who had lost function because of a lack of physical exercise, exacerbated by the changes that happen in our bodies naturally with age. For muscles, there are a few things that happen as our biological clocks tick on. We've got a bunch of different muscle type cells and each muscle type cell, they've, they've kind of got their own job. So we've got type one muscle fibers, who, which are um, slower type muscle fibers. And, and we really use them when we're prolonged walking or in, endurance type activities. We've got type two muscle fibers, which are faster type muscle fibers. And we really recruit those when we need to do something relatively quickly, such as standing up from your chair. And one of the things that happens when we get older, so they're type 2 muscle fibres, those fast ones, they convert into slow type muscle fibres. We also lose some of our muscle cells, says Lara, though not a whole lot. But another thing that happens is that communication between the muscles and nerves gets disrupted. In fit molecules, um, they like to nest themselves in between our muscle cells, which is detrimental for the neural activation, we get a whole bunch of changes at the neuromuscular junction, so where our nerve endings match with our muscle cells. So that becomes a struggle, and then because that becomes a struggle, and because those fat cells are still in the way, we get less blood supply to our muscle cells, so then they've got less oxygen and less less nutrients that they need to contract. So there's yeah, there's a bunch of different things. Sounds bad, right? But wait. It's both preventable and treatable. No prizes for what the answer is. The main thing to do is being physically active and using your muscles. It's the same old, same old. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. And in older adults, it's, it's really, um, that's really the case. And ideally, because you, those muscle changes, they're actually happening far earlier than people usually think. So those changes happen from about 30 years of age onwards. So muscle mass peak and strength peaks are usually reached at about age of 30 and then we get that slow decline. So ideally a lifelong commitment to physical activity and to be fair enough protein intake. And when you say a lifelong commitment to physical activity, like how does that look in a standard week? How much should we be doing? Yes, that's also a good question. There's plenty of guidelines out there. One of the most used guidelines is about 150 minutes of moderate activity per week, with moderate meaning that you get puffed, but you can still talk. And then to combat this age-related loss in muscle mass and in in strength and in bone mass as well, actually, we recommend two days a week of resistance training. Resistance training is a catch-all term for exercises that make your muscles work against a weight or force. So lifting weights in the gym or using resistance bands or exercises that make you lift some of your body weight. But there's no one set formula for this. I think the main thing that we've been seeing in, in recent research from a couple of colleagues of mine in Brazil is that this 150 minutes is a very arbitrary number. And especially older adults, they get benefits from less minutes as well. 
so I guess it's it's a combination of anything is more than nothing and the more the better. <laughs> and I think that the lifelong commitment lies in the fact that it needs to be sustainable for the person. Every year, the Ministry of Health conducts a survey and one of the things they ask about is activity levels. So how are we doing? It's comparable to the rest of the world. It's not bad. It's not great. So Ministry of Health, their survey shows that 51.8% of our adult population is physically active. So they report, self-report, to do 150 minutes of physical activity. And the other 50% is not as physically active. And that ranges from doing less than 30 minutes a week to 30 to 150 minutes a week, um, with about one in eight adults being physically inactive, doing less than 30 minutes of physical activity per week, which is little. The difficulty in self-reported physical activity is that it's rather easy to underestimate and overestimate at the same time. So we know from research that people who are physically active, they'll over-report how physically active they are. And people who are not physically active, they'll under-report how physically active they are, if that makes sense. It's very, yeah, it's very tricky. And then there's also physical activities that most people don't think is physical activity, such as gardening. A study that Lara is involved in right now is the Games Athletes Medical Evaluation and Status, which spells games. Which is very clever. Basically, we're looking at the functioning and the medical history of our elite athletes in New Zealand. It focuses on the very end of the spectrum, those who always have committed to a very high level of physical activity. Um, so it focuses mostly on our Olympian and Commonwealth game athletes who are currently over the age of 60. And we're trying to find out if they're current physical functioning is similar to the general population or if they're performing better or worse to try and see if that lifelong commitment to physical activity is as beneficial as we think it is. And there's some evidence overseas that former athletes such as these do tend to live longer, correct? Yes. So research has shown that they tend to live about three years longer than the general population. Um, and there is... One study from Japanese colleagues and Japanese researchers that have looked at um, those body compositional changes. So they've looked at the age-related loss of, of muscle mass and function, and they compared the general population with a group of Japanese Olympians. And they have shown that their function is a lot better. They have less decline in muscle quality and in muscle mass. At the same time, they're also reporting more muscle and joint pain because as you, as you can imagine, if you, especially in, in, in sport like athletics and lots of running, that has a really big impact on your joints, um, but mainly, mainly positive. They've recruited 35 former athletes to work with. They call out to their homes to interview with them and also do different measurements grip strength as a proxy for overall muscle strength, measurements of gait speed and balance, tests of dynamic balance and mobility, so asking them to stand up and walk around a cone, plus asking them to sit and stand five times in a row, and they also measure cardiorespiratory fitness using a two-minute step test. These results are then compared to those already known for the general population. One of the things that we're hoping to get out of it is, first of all, 
to make sure that those who commit to being an Olympian or a Commonwealth game athlete, that they know the advantages and the risks of the choice that they make. And for the general population, yeah, we're really hoping to try and show that this lifelong commitment to physical activity is what we need to do. Having spoken to some of the athletes, they're full of amazing stories. And I think it'd be yeah, really cool to, to explore that a bit more and, and try to see if there's anything in their personalities that makes them commit to this lifelong commitment of physical activity. And is that is that something that we can teach or use in the general population to stimulate um, the, the general population to be more more active as well? Yeah, because we, we can't all be Olympic athletes. Nope, we cannot. And I don't think we, we should not want all to be Olympic athletes either. Um, but there is definitely some, some lessons that we can learn from them. That's for sure. Thanks to Dr. Lara Vliestra of the School of Physical Education, Sports and Exercise Science at the University of Otago. Te whare wangana o Otago. Ko Kraken Kananaho te kaiho tu o tēne hōtaka i āwhina mai are William Ray, Rawa, ko Ellen Rikers. I produced this one with help from William and Ellen. Sound engineering was by William Saunders and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Kia faia i te auhurehanga i tētahi taupanga paiake kia koe. Follow the Our Changing World podcast on your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking for other podcasts to listen to, check out the podcast series tab on the main RNZ webpage. New series are being released all the time. If you want the latest in politics, you can check out Mata and Caucus or listen to the latest release, Conviction, a long-form investigation into the Christchurch civic crush case in the 90s. Our show webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And if you've got feedback for us, you can email ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz or find us on Facebook or X where we are at RNZ Science. Tēnā koe i whakarongo mai. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Have a great week. Kia pai, te wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.